Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you're snacking on anything but Tasty Cake, you're making a huge Miss Cake. A fistful of chocolate-covered raisins? Miss Cake. A spoonful of peanut butter? Bigger Miss Cake. Or the worst Miss Cake of all. Your kid's Halloween candy. And it's April. If it's not Tasty Cake, it's a Miss Cake. Because nothing satisfies like a perfectly sweet butterscotch crimpet. Or rich and creamy chocolate peanut butter candy cake. Tasty Cake. Except no substitutes. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the amazing, the talented, my partner in banter, Mr. Daniel Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. What's up, Dan? Nothing much, Leslie. I am another year older and deeper in debt. Are we still the oldies from last week? Olds. 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 We are the olds, and then there are the youngs, or the youths. Well, it's on me as a member of the Olds to not remember that we were called the Olds and not the Oldies, so. (laughs) And our listeners, of course, incidentally, are all young and vibrant. Yes. And all in whatever the appropriate demographic is for ad sales for podcasts. Well, that's a wonderful transition, Dan. So let's start before we get into this week's top five with the headlines of the week. Tyler Perry has set his first Viacom project, and it's a soap set in the White House for BET. That is among the two dramas and two comedies, plus a live holiday event in the works for BET. Meanwhile, Nikolai Koster-Walder has booked his Game of Thrones TV follow-up and will star in an FX drama set in the 1980s about Hollywood agencies. Why did everyone not just make a Where's Waldo joke in their headlines for that? Dude, because it's the guy from Game of Thrones who's awesome. Yes, but still, I would have done in my headline as Where's Waldo? Oh, he's in an FX drama pilot. And it's from the creators of Terriers, a show we both very much love and miss. It is indeed. I am entirely on board for that one, which also features Judd Hirsch, Tony winner Jonathan Price. But again, as you said, created by Ted Griffin, executive produced by Sean Ryan. So honestly, bring that on. Yeah, bring that on. Elsewhere, Kevin Costner vehicle Yellowstone has nabbed an early season three renewal at Paramount Network. Showtime has picked up BBC comedy Back to Life from the producers of Fleabag and a Kirsten Dunst-led comedy called On Becoming a God in Central Florida, which was originally developed for YouTube, Dan. Um, Sort of makes me wonder what's happening with YouTube originals, but I like Kirsten Dunst and I like being reminded of how good she was in Fargo, which a lot of the stories mentioning her as Fargo Emmy nominee Kirsten Dunst, it made me happy. Yes. As for YouTube originals, we kind of know what's going on there. A lot of them are in turnaround, which is what happened with this one. And I think there's very few that are remaining as YouTube kind of shifts strategy a little bit. It's just going to become the all Cobra Kai all the time streaming platform. I mean, look, we got to hit. At least it's free now, right? (laughs) Cobra Kai, unboxing videos and random harassment and misogyny. It's YouTube, and it's free. Elsewhere, Netflix has renewed Queer Eye for two additional seasons and canceled scripted drama Chambers, starring Uma Thurman and Tony Goldwyn after one season. It's a rare one-and-done at Netflix. I need to emphasize that my review of that one began with my pointing out that I watched 10 episodes of it, and the first time it became interesting was right at the very end when I was like, okay, now I want to see what season two looks like. So they can't even give me season two. Netflix wasting Dan Feinberg's time is going to be a running theme in this podcast. We'll get to that more later. Yes. And rounding up this week's headlines, Pose, one of my favorites, has earned an early season three renewal at FX as director and exec producer Janet Mock has also signed a groundbreaking overall deal with, wait for it, Netflix, where she joins fellow producers Ryan Murphy and Brad Felchuk. I feel like we've periodically talked about the overall deals market and as if it might be a topic of conversation. 
Might be. Well, we can get it right into that right now. Well, with all the headlines out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off this week, and we've talked about this as being the big remaining shoe to drop in the overall deal marketplace, J.J. Abrams and his bad robot. Bad robot. Banner is in final negotiations for an overall deal with Warner Media, which is his home since 2006. So it's not like he's, you know, taking his services to Miami in a deal that is estimated to be worth. Wait for it. 500 million. I probably would have gone with half a billion. One way or the other, that's a lot of money. First of all, who else wanted him? How competitive was this process? And and what was Warner Media's advantage here? Well, this is a story that's been at least six months in the works. I mean, it's a story that I've been tracking since late last year. And the deal's still not completely done. No one is commenting on it. And we should say that, look, that $500 million or half a billion dollar estimate is just that. It really is an estimate. It's really hard to know because there's a lot of things that we don't know about this deal yet, including how many years it's for, just how all-encompassing it is. We know it'll be film and TV and digital. There's rumors it may involve other areas of the company, like consumer products. But look, this is a major, major get for Warner Media to keep him there. Everyone was trying to get him. Netflix pursued him. Apple pursued him. He's got three shows via Warner Brothers already set up at Apple. They were among the finalists in the competition to land Bad Robot. Sony Entertainment was one of the other finalists. It was really down to those three. But Disney made a play. Comcast made a play. Netflix made a play. I believe Amazon did, too. I mean, look, it's Bad Robot. And whatever hits and misses he's had on the TV side, it's J.J. Abrams. You put his name on a TV show and it helps it cut through. I still think if you look at his track record, it is definitely speckled with enough pretty major failures that I would at least raise an eyebrow, except that as we've discussed many times, the overall deal marketplace is nutty. Uh, Could you give us any sort of insight on sort of what the money actually goes into in these deals? Because I think we just sort of hear the money. And I think in a lot of our minds, speaking only for myself, it involves a big publisher's clearinghouse check being handed to the one person whose name is atop the production company. And then he runs off to the bank and starts spending money. But clearly, it's it, it's going more places than that. Yeah, you know, I actually did an interview this week with John Wells, who is a veteran producer behind hits like ER, The West Wing, Shameless, another one of my favorites. And he also just re-upped this week with Warner Media in a nine-figure, five-year deal. And he did a rare on-the-record interview about the pact. And, and one of the things that he pointed out is, look, his company, John Wells Productions, has a team of between 17 and 20 staffers. And they have an office that's off the Warner Brothers lot. So they basically pay for their own overhead. But that big of a deal goes for the company's overhead. So it pays salaries. It allows the production company to buy intellectual property. You know, look, John Wells just announced a slate of 13 different projects in development. If memory serves, nine of those 13 are based on IP. So that's optioning property. You have to pay for that. It's not just a giant check going into JJ or John's pocket. It's to support the company and it's to allow them to go out and pursue IP, which is, you know, look, in this peak TV era, the competition for everything is fierce. I think that's an interesting thing to know because I sometimes do picture it as being a giant check, even knowing that it's not, whereas what it really means is rent for offices, pencils and erasers, et cetera, et cetera. So now paying salaries of employees who are helping to locate and discover some of the projects. It could be your next favorite show. Yeah, it's for the entire company. It's something like a bad robot is a major entity. Yeah. And they're also located off the lot. They have their own offices, which I haven't been, but I hear that they're incredible. I mean, I've been to Alex Kurtzman's office and that was impressive. It's filled with like amazing Star Trek stuff. I can only imagine what Bad Robot looks like. So now talk a little bit about the speed with which these deals turn around, because we've talked already about how many of the big Netflix producers haven't actually had their shows start to actually come out of the deal. Whereas you mentioned Tyler Perry and his BET deal and that looks like stuff is turning around really quickly. Yeah, that's really impressive. Look, you know, Tyler Perry signed this massive Viacom film and TV deal in 2017. It didn't kick in until his own deal with the Oprah Winfrey Network. Own, as in capital O, capital W, capital N. Sorry, I had to, I'm making sure that the listeners also go through the mental process. Yes, Tyler Perry's deal with himself. That's what I'm saying. So his deal with Oprah's network 
expired in May 2019. So he had this other deal and already lined up for two years. He knew exactly where he was going. And once that deal expired, his Viacom Pact took over effective June 1st. And here we are. Today is June 20th as we record this. Comes out tomorrow, June 21st. But a mere two and a half weeks into his deal, he's already got his first series order. We know that he's making four scripted shows, two dramas, two comedies, and a live holiday production. We know what the first show is. It's called The Oval. It's a White House soap about the first couple and their family. And it's fully cast. It begins production in the summer at Tyler Perry Studios in Atlanta. That's impressive. On the other side of the coin, Shonda Rhimes moved her overall deal to Netflix. That was announced in August 2017. She announced her first slate about a year later. And here we are mid-2019, and she's just started to cast her very first show. This week, Julie Andrews was announced to be voicing a character in her first show. There's no premiere date. There's been rumblings that something could premiere this year. But I mean, look, like I said, we're almost to July. We only have one person cast. Production clearly hasn't started yet. Netflix likes to drop all the episodes all at once. I would be impressed if there was a Shonda show out in 2019. So you're looking at Tyler Perry having a couple of years, I guess, knowing that he was going to do this show for BET versus Shonda. You know, look, it takes time for these producers to set up their projects. And, you know, Ryan Murphy's got three different shows set up at Netflix. The first two that he's doing, The Politician and Ratchet, are via his last overall deal with 20th Century Fox TV. His third show is called Hollywood, which we don't know a whole lot about. That's going to be the first original he's doing for Netflix in terms of scripted series. No premiere date. So it takes time, at least a year, you know, to set up once you move. That's what I've been hearing, sometimes more. And so we've been talking about the Bad Robot deal being up and about JJ being the sort of major free agent for a long time. Do you have an answer for who the next major free agent is or who you're tracking as as a next major contender to get the next big overall deal? I think I've said and definitely written about this before, but my focus right now, I'm very curious where Seth MacFarlane goes. His deal with 20th Century Fox expired this summer. I don't know how much of a Disney guy he is, but I do know that Family Guy is now owned by Disney and it's a billion dollar asset. I should say multi-billion dollar asset. Anyone and everyone is going to go after him. So I'm very curious to see where he winds up landing, if he stays and what that looks like. Meanwhile, next year, Chuck Lorre and Dick Wolf. Imagine those deals. Those are big ones. And guess what? Those sound like future podcast segments. Yes, they do. Well, that takes us to our second segment of the week. Number two. The nominations are out for the Television Critics Association's annual awards. FX's Pose and Netflix's Russian Doll led all programming with four nominations each. HBO edged Netflix with 15 to their 14. Dan, we've mentioned on this podcast before, but you are finishing up your final term as president of the TCA. As such a high position with the organization, what do you think of this year's nominations? I'm going to now pause while we play a sound effect from Hail to the Chief. Okay, you don't really need to do it. I'm telling our producers. Please, in fact, don't. Yes, uh, the August 3rd TCA Awards will mark the basically the end of my tenure as TCA president. And all signs point to it being a pretty fun little uh, group of nominees and potentially exciting awards, which will be hosted, as we've mentioned before, by Desus and Mero, who are awesome and who are also, in fact, nominated for a TCA award themselves. Well deserved. But yes, it's a really good group. I think that there are a lot of exciting nominees here. There's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of new faces, several, you know, established former winners can always find a way to nominate Julie Louis-Dreyfus for things. So it's a good mix. I am happy with us. Yeah, I mean, there's some really interesting takeaways that I've noticed. Game of Thrones, for example, was not nominated for achievement in drama. Its only nom, however, was Program of the Year, which if you'd talked to us at the beginning of the year, that would have been a slam dunk. But considering the divisive reaction to the final season, what do you think? I mean, it feels like this is a wide open field. I think it is. I think that it's important to keep in mind, and we like to mention this always when the TCA Awards roll around. The program of the year is a different creature from our Achievement in Drama Award. The Outstanding Achievement in Drama for a series is basically the best drama series of the year. 
the program of the year is designed as sort of the show that dominated the TV landscape, loomed over the TV landscape, the show that kind of represented the year in the best way. And and so for that reason, it actually makes total sense to me. And I really kind of like it that Game of Thrones is not nominated for Outstanding Drama Series, because to me, it is not one of the best dramas on television at this exact point. On the other hand, it's absolutely one of the biggest and most important shows of the year. There is no question that that is the show, realistically, that dominated the year's headlines, the year's clickbait headline mill reviews, recaps, interviews, blah, 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 it was photo a galleries. pop culture phenomenon. It was. And so if it were to win program of the year, it would be utterly Deserved. On the other hand, it is a great category where the other contenders are Chernobyl, Fleabag, Pose, Russian Doll, and When They See Us. And I could make an argument for each one of those being either representative of the year as its TV best, of capturing a cultural moment, of being groundbreaking and important aesthetically, artistically, intellectually. There is not a wrong choice in this group, and I don't know that I've ever felt that way looking at a nomination field for Program of the Year, that there was just no way we were going to get it wrong. We were just going to get it differently right. And I like that. That's reassuring, because some years we give Program of the Year to heroes. Yeah. And what about uh, some of the omissions this year? I mean, I think there was one specifically that you were a little disappointed. Well, I'm always—look, I can only— Every week on this podcast and everywhere else I go, talk about Rami so much. Hulu's Rami is a wonderful show, and it is a special show, and Rami Youssef's achievement in writing and directing on that show, to me, was worthy of recognition. I feel as if probably it's a show that's just gone a little bit under the radar. And here's the thing, the TCA Awards are not designed as a Emmy precursor per se, but they are designed as a, here are good shows, keep these in mind. And so and I think... the TCA was the first to really recognize Killing Eve last year. I think a lot of things, because of the timing at which we come out, you know, the Golden Globes obviously get to recognize whatever they want that premiered between basically June 1st and December 1st. That's sort of where they go. And so that's why they get to be the first ones to coronate a Kaminsky method or something. But we still like to put our stamp on good things. And I think having Fleabag with all of these nominations and Russian Doll with all these nominations, I think that does that. I think that says, okay, seriously, Emmy voters, if you haven't checked these out, check these out. I think, though, that a nomination or two for Rami would have done the same. And so that disappoints me a tiny bit. Yeah. But let's talk about some of the other new programs that cut through. I always love the TCA's new program of the year category because it really spotlights a lot of what we've been talking about. So this year, the nominees are Dead to Me, The Other Two, Pose, Russian Doll, Succession, which I actually nominated too, as well as Pose, and What We Do in the Shadows. I mean, that's an incredible group, but it also feels like maybe you could expand that to 10, Mr. President? Well, I mean, this is always our colleague Tim Goodman's Emmy thing, and we just had an Emmy back and forth about it last week where Tim raised the question once again of why there aren't 10 nominees in each Emmy category. And he's been beating that drum for a few years now. He really has aggressively, and I think he's fundamentally correct. I think that there is no question that there are is more great TV than the Emmy voters are able to recognize or than critics are able to recognize. As I observed in this year's conversation, the drama fields this year are weak enough that I honestly think they would have been reaching to go to 10 in most of the drama categories. But in the comedy categories, I don't think six nominations begins to cover it. And I think you sort of see how, you know, mixed and varied the options are with Dead to Me, with the other two, with what we do in the shadows. So, you know, the other three are all nominated for multiple things, uh, Pose, Russian Doll, and Succession. But I, I just like seeing those other three in there. Again, would have loved to have seen Rami, would have loved to have maybe seen a little show I like to call Hulu's Penis in there. I think there are probably a few other shows that I would have loved to get into that category, but that's that's a good group. And even the shows there that I don't love... And I'm mixed on what we do in the shadows. I don't love the other two as much as some people do. I'm mixed on Dead to Me. I respect all of those shows, and I understand why people respond to them. So, yeah, once again, honestly, looking over these fields, 
there is so little that I'm angry about. And the Emmys will not be able to say that in a yeah, few weeks. Well, let's look at comedy really quick, just to wrap things up. Barry, Fleabag, The Good Place, which won last year, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Russian Doll, Schitt's Creek, and Veep, which won in 2014. That's a great group. It is. And, and a tough category. It's a tough category. This is the only category that uh, has seven nominees because it was the only category that featured a tie in our voting. And if I could have jerry-rigged a tie in three or four other categories, I would. But I'm a decent and honest person, and I don't fiddle with vote totals. But there was a legitimate tie here, and that got an additional show in. But even still, could have added three in a second. And there are so many good shows, whether it's something like Rami, which I may have mentioned a few times. But then there are also things, you know, like like Superstore on NBC or getting one last year of recognition for former winner uh, Big Bang Theory. Uh, you know, there are lots of contenders and this is a very good tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I always think it's really interesting that Schitt's Creek kind of snuck in there because I think this was the first year that that show was nominated, right? It is. And I kind of had the feeling as I saw when it premiered this year on Pop, the increase in the number of reviews of the new season, the increase in the number of why are you not talking about TV's best comedy think pieces. And it's another show that I don't love as much as some people do, but I also see the passion with which people feel about it and I understand it. It's also one of those shows where when I'm out there talking to non-industry people, when I'm out there actually talking to non-industry friends, when I am hanging out with my parents and their friends, etc., it's the show people mention to me the most frequently as a show they love. It is a show that people truly adore and I'm happy to see a little bit of recognition for it. And obviously, Catherine O'Hara, who was nominated for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Comedy. I mean, good God, she's she's an icon. You do not go wrong nominating Catherine O'Hara for things. Yeah. Well, that takes us to our third segment this week. Number three. Batting third this week, we are pleased to welcome Lacey Rose, the Hollywood Reporter's executive TV editor to the podcast, to discuss her cover story on the busiest man in comedy, Trevor Noah, as well as this week's big comedy issue. Welcome, Lacey. Hi. Thanks for having me. So you do many of our most exciting cover stories at the Hollywood Reporter, Lacey. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> no, you are, you are very good at getting people who don't necessarily open up to other people to open up to you. It is a gift that you have. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I noticed in your article that you sort of talk a little bit about some of the things that Trevor doesn't want to talk about. And some of those things are, are very obvious. He doesn't want to talk about his relationships and whatever. When it comes to things like talking about kind of his insecurities when he got the job and when he started, how comfortable does he seem wanting to talk about the initial reaction to his hiring and, you know, that moment? Yeah, I think he was perfectly comfortable sort of rehashing those early days. I think the thing that that surprised me and perhaps it shouldn't have surprised me is is how much passion he brought to sort of that conversation, particularly around that initial round of the a the, the the Trevor Who's, but also the sort of response to those tweets that were unearthed in the 24 hours following the announcements. He was sort of still the same level of passion I think he felt then about not wanting to apologize for those tweets. I think he saw those tweets as, you know, lacking in context as they were presented at, at the time, but also this idea and this objection to the fact that you, that there is sort of a knee jerk, you must apologize and, and then we move on, which is something that he doesn't subscribe to. He feels like, no, I, I'd rather talk about the, sort of my evolution and the fact that I have evolved since tweeting those things. That to him is more meaningful. Which I find funny because re your article came out, obviously, the same week that he's done multiple shows this week talking about that the Parkland kid who got rejected at Harvard. And now, of course, I read your article and I immediately thought of that is, hmm, does this feel like a double standard? And I don't think it does. I think his point is that it's too soon to see if this kid has really changed and evolved and he I needs think to do the time. I think, that, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think his point is if you look back, I mean, that the tweets or you know, films, TV shows, what have you are sort of moments, you know, time stamped moments. And that if you look back and, you know, five, 10 years later, you are still that same person. He objects to that, that there should be growth and there should be evolution. And he argues that 
yeah, like I, I'm not that same guy. Now, he also would argue that there's context that was missing from a single 140 character tweet from 2009, but that they're also, that shouldn't the fact that he evolved be more important than his ability to say the words, I'm sorry, which he felt would be hollow. I feel like we have to keep doing that that same conversation, whether oh, it's Kevin Hart or Trevor yeah. Noah or I was having anyone. flashbacks on the Kevin Hart. <laughs> well, stuff. absolutely, but he and, and for him, he was actually, if not the first, one of the first who was in a position where all of a sudden his hiring on a for a major sort of Hollywood gig was called into question because of things he had tweeted long ago. Well, he had the disadvantage or whatever of the fact that for many people they had literally no clue who he was. Absolutely. As like as your article said, he'd done three segments on the show when he Correct. interviewed. So which was always funny to me because they announced him as Daily Show correspondent. Trevor Noah's been brought up and I'm like, I've watched oh? the Daily Show every day for my whole life and I don't have a clue who this person is. And you were not alone. I, and yet I love him now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's got so much going on. I think you said that he's built an empire that, that's worth in the eight figures and growing. Can you talk a little bit about what really surprised you about how, how much he's really expanded his stateside presence? Yeah, I mean, I think what was interesting to me was that very thing that people sort of reacted to initially, which is which is that that Trevor who and, and how could this guy that that is from elsewhere that is at the time 31 years old, how can he replace Jon Stewart? And, and why are we going to care about his perspective on the sort of U.S. political system? And yet I think in the years since he has been able to sort of parlay that unique global millennial perspective into this eight-figure empire. And he has done that, obviously, with The Daily Show, but also through his comedy, where he is selling out arenas, through this massive Viacom deal where they're going to turn his bestseller into a film with Lupita playing his mom, as well as all these other projects, you know, film and, and television and, and digital projects that also sort of rely on these different perspectives and different voices. So I think that that was to me, really interesting to sort of see how far we've come as a culture and, and why such voices are valued, I think, a little bit more today than they were when he started. Now, when you got this particular assignment, gig, whatever, how much of the Trevor Noah empire would you say you were aware of? Like, did you did you really have a sense of how, of the scope of his international success, et cetera? The scale and scope, absolutely not. And I think that that is something that he also sort of objects to, this idea. And and, and I and I think I, I laid it out pretty clearly in, in the piece, but it is something that sort of struck me, which is that he really objects to this sort of U.S. media narrative that that we somehow made him, that the, the Comedy Central platform, you know, made him a star. And his point, and I think he speaks quite powerfully to it and, and quite frankly, more candidly about it than, than I was anticipating, that, you know, I made my fortune, and then that's the word he uses <laughs> in South Africa. You know, I had my nice cars, I had my my homes, I had my success. I wasn't escaping anything. I'm here in the United States now because I wanted to be. I wanted to evolve. I wanted to keep growing and, and keep sort of testing myself. So that, to me, I'm not used to somebody speaking sort of so candidly about sort of one's own success and one's own fortune. I liked it, though, <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you. I, I was taken aback by the fact that he was saying that he almost was going to take a pay cut. Well, he, to well, take he did the, take yeah. a pay cut. Yeah. I mean, when he talked about this, I, this, the negotiations for the Daily Show job, you know, he was going to have to forgo a, a tremendous amount of touring revenue. He was going to be tethered to a show in New York four nights a week. And what that would mean is he couldn't go on tour where he was making a lot more money than he was going to make as Trevor Who on The Daily Show. And so initially, you know, he said, I really have to think about this. I'm going to have to take a pay cut. And the response from the folks at Comedy Central in, in his retelling is like, a pay cut? Like, don't you understand? You're going to be the host of The Daily Show. Which like you're getting is... the keys to the kingdom here. But again, that's a very sort of U.S. Mm -hmm. perspective. And, and he was like, just not to, I think he said not to pop your bubble, um, I believe is, is the language he used. But you can make a whole lot more, you know, you can make a ton of money elsewhere in the world. So that's a perspective that I think he brings to a lot of this that I think is often lost in the way that we have covered it. And, and for that reason, I 
was surprised. It's a, it's a hard thing to do because we sort of, we think of it as, again, keys to the kingdom, whatever, sure. whatever. But there was also every bit as much the he was set up to fail, that there was no way he no could question. have succeeded. And the fact that he still has the job right now and that it's become his own is, to me, kind of remarkable. I think that's absolutely right. I, I think we all, I think there was very much a feeling of, like, this was a suicide mission. And maybe the next guy, the guy after him, had a shot. But I think, I mean, you know, I spoke to all the Comedy Central executives who were there at the time, and there were a lot of people who were much more interested in being the next guy. That it was a much safer being the guy after the guy who failed. And ultimately, when it came down to it, they didn't, nobody wanted to actually be the replacement. They liked the idea of their names, you know, bandied about. But when, when Bush came to show, there are a lot of people who didn't actually want that job. Who else is in the running for that? You know, I think there was a, it was a long list of, of names. I think when it became a shorter list, the names that they were talking about were the Amys, so Polar and Schumer. Chris Rock was another name that was sort of seriously considered. I think there was, you know, varying levels of interest from those people. I think, you know, with Chris in potentially doing it until the election, but not beyond, which wasn't something that was appealing to them. You know, I think there was some interest in, from Schumer. Polar, I think less so, but but a lot of interest on the Comedy Central side. So there was a lot of much bigger names. I think that Trevor brought something different and unique to the table, and it was a much bigger gamble, but I think paid off. And because it's coming out in a couple of weeks, and your article came out, a pretty long way out on uh, The Loudest Voice. Talk a little bit quickly about interviewing Russell Crowe in his fat makeup. Oh. Fat makeup. Fat makeup. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, it was, it was fascinating. I did my interview in Russell Crowe's trailer while he was in the makeup chair, which is something that I typically would absolutely object to. No interest in sitting there while someone's in makeup and thus distracted and, and you're not getting, building a connection. And you're, yeah, I mean, there's... In this case, it was fascinating because they were literally the prosthetics. Uh, Roger Ailes was being peeled off of him one layer of skin at a time or neck slab or cheek, cheek fat and then what have you. So to actually sort of watch the physical transformation was fascinating. Even the taking off of, of Roger is an hour long <laughs> process. So it was, it, I, you know, from a color perspective, fascinating. Um, and also just to see sort of what goes into becoming a character like that was really enlightening to me. This is obviously for Loudest Voice on, on Showtime. I mean, I've, I've interviewed actors in makeup before. I interviewed Jackie Earl Haley on the Nightmare on Elm Street set where when he was in his Freddy Krueger makeup. And all he wanted to talk about was the excruciating pain he was in the entire time. Like he, he was talking about how his eyes burnt from the contact lenses. He couldn't move. He couldn't act. Did you get the feeling that Russell Crowe thought he could actually act through all this latex? <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> I also heard about some of the pain involved. I mean, both the amount of time it took, which... I think initially was something like six hours and, and, and had been pared down considerably over the course of production. But also, yes, the, the, I mean, the, the damage to his skin and, and, and all of, of those pieces. But I also think he felt it was important to sort of inhabit that character, to, to really sort of... And I think it was interesting, you know, I spent time with him walking the streets of, of New York during the actual filming and nobody recognized him. And I think it allows you to become that character in a way if he was walking around as Russell Crowe, all of a sudden he's reminded constantly that he's this, you know, actor playing a part because there's paparazzi and there's, you know, people wanting autographs. He, he was able to sort of get lost in the character in a way that I don't think without the makeup he would have been able to. Yeah. In a larger sense, this is one of multiple projects about Roger Ailes that are coming out. This is the first of them. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of pressure do you think that he's feeling or that Showtime is feeling with this? And uh, and are they prepared for any possible lawsuits? Well, there's already, I mean, Lori Loon is already sued. And I think that they, you know, I think there's an anticipation that she probably won't be the only one. I think you go, wide, you know, eyes wide open into projects like these, it was important to the people involved in this project to be the first. Uh, there's obviously, there is a movie coming out later this year, a Jay Roach, Roach movie. Um, I think it was really important, I mean, to be perfectly handed, like, yeah, they, they wanted to be first. I think it's a very different way into the story. You know, the, the film is, is very much sort of Megyn Kelly's story. 
And I think, you know, in, in my cover, you know, the showrunner of the Showtime series, Alex Metcalf, was sort of very candid about the fact that, like, this is, it's not the Megyn Kelly story. It's the Gretchen and, and, and the, the, the sort of coterie of women that took Roger down. His take was like, no, it, it's the Gretchen Carlson took him down. Everyone else came after and, and all of that's, you know, it's brave and great and, and what have you. But to be clear, there's one hero in the story and it's Gretchen. And that's the story that the Showtime series tells. Yeah, and Megyn Kelly is not even a character in this. Yeah, I mean, they deemed her so irrelevant to the story that she is literally not even in it. Burn. Burn. Well, The Loudest Voice premieres June 30th on Showtime. Lacey, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you, guys. Number four. That takes us to our fourth topic this week. Batting cleanup, let's go to the mailbag, Dan. As always, if you wish to reach us and ask us questions, either very, very deeply serious or slightly mirthful, Please email us at TV's top five at THR.com. Uh, I'm going to read the first question because uh, Leslie has most of the answer to it. The first question comes from listener Craig Albuck, who writes, with Game of Thrones going out with a whimper, what are your feelings about all the hype to make the next sci-fi fantasy must-see show? Craig, in his question, asked specifically about a show that made a little bit of progress this week. Yes. Wheel of Time over at Amazon. That's been in the works for at least, I think it was two years, maybe more. Developed by Amazon's former head of genre, Sharon Taliogato, who left earlier this year. And this week, news broke that Rosamund Pike is going to star in that drama series. There is no premiere date for that one. And do we feel like this is one of those that's where they're actually going to shoot a pilot? Because Amazon is not doing the Netflix direct-to-series thing, but you have to feel with a property of this size and now with a star as big as Rosamund Pike, you know, that that ought to guarantee. Yeah, I mean, it's already been picked up straight to series on this one. They do. Amazon does do development, just not on all projects. I think with something this, you know, with something like Wheel of Time that has the scope of this kind of a show. And look, a lot of the fantasy dramas take a lot longer to produce. You got to build intricate sets. It's this, this is, these are complex worlds of fantasy shows and it takes time to produce all of this stuff. So while there's no premiere date for that one yet, I mean, there is for another show that we haven't talked about this week and we should, Why the Last Man over at FX. We've talked about that on the podcast before, namely the two showrunners who were the driving force of the, of the project and the adaptation of Brian K. Vaughan's beloved graphic novel, Departed. FX stuck with it. And this week they hired a new showrunner to take over. And her name is Eliza Clark. Her credits include CBS's fantasy drama, The Extant, or the space drama Extant and The Killing. That show, FX says, is on track for 2020. But look, you know, HBO is started production this week on the Game of Thrones prequel starring Naomi Watts. No premiere date for that. It's still a pilot. HBO is insisting that they're going to take their time with it. They're in no rush to put another Game of Thrones show back up on the air. They have a ton of stuff in development, a lot of stuff in the pipeline coming up. Watchmen is due this year. Look, these these are shows that there's a lot of pressure to succeed and there's a lot of money riding on the line to get it right. So I think what's interesting is how soon we'll, we'll see the next show that's crowned. Here's the next Game of Thrones. And if it'll actually be Game of Thrones. And we've talked frequently about, or at least we've talked occasionally about the Lord of the Rings thing that Amazon is also in development on. And what do we feel like we know about that one at this point? <laughs> Not a whole lot. I mean, you've got a couple of people attached as showrunners on it. Amazon has spent $250 million just on global rights for the IP alone. There's rumors circulating that they may use data that they've collected through readers of the property on Amazon Kindle to kind of dive into some of the the little corners of the universe that people are interested in. Amazon is a data company. So imagine what they're going to do with the data when people read Lord of the Rings and look up maybe some of the footnotes or look at look at maps. I mean, this is all data that Amazon's got. So there's also no premiere date for that. I mean, Jen Salky, I believe, has said 2020 or 2021. But that's an even that's the biggest f- fantasy project that's currently in the works. And look, Wheel of Time is based on a book series that sold more than 90 million copies. It's massive. But this is Lord of the Rings. You know, that's the probably the biggest one in my book. And we don't have any cast yet. They're working on it behind closed doors. You need a strict like permission to get in. It's like under lock and key. It's like the room is under. I mean, 
they're safeguarding every single piece of, of Lord of the Rings. So yeah, I would be astounded if we see that before 2021. I mean, 2020 seems much, much too soon for that. You began already to hint at the answer to our second question, which comes from uh, listener Luke Haas, who attended our live show at ATX. Thank you. Thank you, Luke, for coming. We appreciate Luke's attendance and all of the wonderful people who are at a live show, which you can listen to. It was two weeks ago in the podcast. We think it was pretty terrific, actually. One of my favorites. Anyway, Luke writes, uh, what are the factors that lead to a show being labeled as troubled due to a change in showrunners versus just having a peaceful transition of power? One of my favorite pieces of Luke's question is that he also referenced Designated Survivor, which is, of course, as you know, one of my favorite punching bags. So three seasons, two networks, five showrunners. God, we really, I don't think, have mentioned that at in at least two weeks. At least two weeks. But the answer to the larger question is, you know, it really varies. You know, why The Last Man was a creative issue. And the showrunners were very upfront of saying FX is not moving forward with our vision of the show. And FX was sticking with the show, but it was clearly a creative impasse. There's not a whole lot of details about what exactly that they were doing versus what FX and the producers were looking to do with the property. I mean, it's look, it's Why the Last Man. It's To me, it's one of the best graphic novels out there. It's won numerous awards on the comic side. You know, I did a business story about uh, when Arrow became a thing and the CW really leaned hard into DC Comics. And I pulled a lot of producers who are in the, in the Marvel universe and in the DC universe about what should be the next graphic novel to get the screen treatment. And they all said, Why the Last Man? And that was when it was still toiling away as a film when creator Brian K. Vaughn was still trying to get the rights back from New Line, before, well before it was in development in FX. So there's a lot of pressure to get it right. Other times, it's a combination of, of factors. You know, The Walking Dead is one of the biggest shows on television, and that's gone through a number of showrunners. Frank Darabont, who is suing AMC over profits, was fired. He was replaced by Glenn Mazzara, who was also pushed out. Scott Gimple was promoted, you know, left and was promoted to, to a chief content officer of all things Walking Dead at, at AMC. I mean, sometimes it's creative. Sometimes you're arguing over budget. Sometimes you're clashing with other executive producers. And then on, on, on other shows like Killing Eve, which is super interesting, they've announced that there's going to be new showrunners on that every single season because they want to embrace women and let them have an, an opportunity to be showrunners for the first time. Yeah, I think you can tell the difference between when something is like Designated Survivor, where if you watch the show, you don't even need to know the inside dirt that you can read in a fine publication like The Hollywood Reporter to know that things on that show have been weird from the very beginning. Like if you watch it from the first episode, there are characters who were in those first couple episodes who never appear again or who were phased out, you know, go off to private school somewhere. You can sense the emphasis that is being put on either the Maggie Q storyline or the main storyline, you can tell whether or not you're able to necessarily articulate, hmm, I can tell that this is a show that doesn't necessarily know what direction it's being steered in and that would like to go from to more of a serialized thing as opposed to a uh, investigation of the week, blah, blah, blah. Even if you can't necessarily put your finger on that, you know when they kill off a character who was not being used all that well, that that's because they needed to do something because they realized they weren't using a character very well. You you can tell, whereas lots of shows, it's somebody who's a big name who is going off to develop or make another show. Like on Superstore. Like on Superstore. And then you, or on many shows, I would say, I'd say that's what a lot of the changes have been on Walking Dead, where it's simply an orderly transition of power, whereas, you know, not all of them, but some of them, and where it's an orderly yeah, transition. Scott, Scott Gimple was definitely an orderly transition. Designated Survivors also happens to be a, a complex show where you've got the writer's room is in Los Angeles. The show creator and, and production is based in New York. Kiefer Sutherland is also an executive producer on it and is allegedly giving notes on scripts. I mean, sometimes what's interesting to me is if you're watching a show, look, pay attention to the credits, count the number of executive producers. That kind of gives you a hint at how many hands are in the cookie jar. And yeah, again, with Walking Dead, it's something where some of the time it's been orderly and other times it's been horribly nasty and people are still suing over it. And I think that that's the thing that you can have a show where it can have both of those two transitions of I mean, power. look at This Is Us, you know, created by Dan Fogelman. In season two, he brought in um, Isaac Apter and Elizabeth Berger as co-showrunners because he needed people to help him carry the, the load of the show as it became a global phenomenon. That doesn't mean that he's that there's, that there's any friction between him and the network or, any, or, or the cast or anything else. It's that he's 
busy and trying to deliver all of this stuff, and there's a lot of demands on his time. So he brought in extra people to help him as co-showrunners. Yeah, little known fact, being a showrunner is a very big, very complicated job, and it's not necessarily... Uh, something you can do and then there's a lot of other great showrunners you know i always love julie pleck who of course started as kevin williamson's head of development and became a showrunner in her own sense and and now she's helped foster a lot of a lot of other up-and-coming producers to become showrunners caroline drees is one of those she's showrunning batwoman indeed so we got one last question in this segment Yes, Dan, this one's for you. Vitor Rodriguez in Portugal has a fun one that, Dan, you are very excited to take on. He writes, if you had to show five TV shows to represent Earth to an alien race, which one would you choose? And it's not necessarily your favorite. It's more of like a representation of the best slash all years of television. That's a huge question. It is. And that's why I enjoy it. And I also urged you to have a little fun with it. So I hope you at least have answers. I might. I mean... And a lot of these answers are very, very simple. So, for example, I would want the aliens to watch The Wire because I tell everyone to watch The Wire. And why would I not tell aliens who ask me what they should watch on TV to watch The Wire? I mean, for heaven's sakes, it's the best show ever made. It also is a show about humanity and all of our institutional failings. So if you wanted aliens to understand how they could undermine our culture, uh, The Wire would be a very good way to look at our relationship with institutions and how they can be undermined. So that would be an easy thing I would have them watch. I'd have them watch The Simpsons, because darn it, not only would they laugh a lot, but they would learn about decades of popular culture. They would also learn about our general paranoia about being overtaken by alien races, and they would perhaps be able to learn from the mistakes made by Kang and Kodos and to uh, go from there. Let's see. I would also have them watch the uh, British Up documentary series, because I think it's the one of the greatest things ever made in the history of the medium. I think it is basically humanity in a nutshell. I think that going from 7 Up to 14 Up to 21 Up, etc., etc., the newest one just premiered in the UK, it allows you to see what the human lifespan looks like and also reminds you that the human lifespan is, well, it's, you know, final and so all you need to do is wait people out they get old they die etc fourth i would urge the aliens to watch halt and catch fire i think it is a a deeply human show that also talks about our relationship with technology and the uh, human desire to expand beyond our technological borders and to dream big i think that would inspire them and then finally and i'm stealing one that you mentioned yesterday as a joke because you weren't taking it seriously i would want them to watch either american ninja warrior or american gladiator because i would want them to see that under the right circumstances humans can do anything and we can kick ass and I want them to be intimidated. Yeah, so. I, I also happen to love American Ninja Warrior. I mean, I love all the little docuseries that they do before the athletes are on the course. And it's a great, you know, look, it's a it's a great show about humanity. Um, <laughs> uh, my five are pretty, I'm really just picking my favorites here, but they're, it's Friends, Friday Night Lights, Parenthood, Parks and Recreation, and a little show I like to call Pose, which I keep talking about on this podcast because you should be watching it. These are honestly, you know, they're, I watch Friends every single night with my wife. It's, it's part of our life. It's, you know, I'm just like every millions of other people who watch it on Netflix or Nick at night or TBS. I mean, it's just, it's a slice of life. This is who we are. This is what life is about. This is our friendship. This is our daily life. I like Parks and Rec in that group because Parks and Rec is a lot like The Wire in that it is a show about institutions and institutions and their struggles and, and how sometimes the individual can feel powerless against an institution, but unlike The Wire, it's a fundamentally positive and upbeat show. The question of whether you want aliens to come away with a positive or negative view of American and human institutions, that becomes a separate question. Yes, but I, plus I, Ron Swanson. I, they should, everyone should learn about Ron Swanson. No, I think that is a, I, I, I like Parks and Rec as an example. Yeah, and Friday Night Lights, I think is, you know, it has been hailed as one of the, the best portrayals of marriage on television. I happen to agree. Parenthood, I, I love that show from start to finish. It's, look, it's a, a show about family, a show that makes you feel, a show that makes you think. And Pose, it just it's just honestly, it's probably the best sense of inclusion I've seen on, in, on television. And it's it's refreshing and it's fun and it's it just... Just give me more more pose and more Billy Porter. Before we move on to the last segment, though, I have to ask, are you sending the aliens Friday Night Lights season two? Or are I you mean, telling them they can skip I'm going to tell them they can, they can skip the murder storyline, <sighs> but it does make you appreciate 
the the later seasons if you do suffer through season two. So. Okay, just had to I had to know what advice you were going to give the aliens about season two. Of any any time I I tell someone I find someone who hasn't seen Friday Night Lights, I say, listen, season two is not great. Sit, just watch it anyway. You'll burn through it. It'll be worth it later. So Agreed. I would tell the aliens the same thing, Dan. Well, that takes us to our fifth and final segment. As usual, we wrap things up with our weekly critics corner. Number five. This week, man, it's the summer doldrums. We've got new arrivals, including Dark and Mr. Iglesias on Netflix. Emma Thompson stars in HBO's Years and Years. The final season of Legion on FX debuts. Plus the returns of Big Brother and The Hills on CBS and MTV, respectively. Dan, not a whole lot this week. Good gracious. Is TV dead, Leslie? No, Is just watch it on your DVR. <laughs> <laughs> Go catch up on something this week. Yeah, this this is a, a rough weekend. Um, Netflix has apparently a Friday embargo on Mr. Iglesias, uh, which I hadn't necessarily realized. Um, if you happen to have maybe glimpsed my review on Thursday afternoon. Oops. It's not awful. There you are. There's my review of uh, but, Mr. Iglesias. But also don't embargo shows for review once they've already come out. I mean... Well, until they come out. Yes, I, it does me no good to have my review of... Mr. Iglesias come up on the day it premieres. But I know that that Fluffy has lots and lots of fans out there. I'm uh, sorry. Just say Fluffy again, please. Fluffy. <laughs> Los Espookies. That's a different show. Uh, but yes, Fluffy has lots of fans and there are worse things he could be doing. Um, year after year is actually fairly uh, interesting. It's from Russell T. Davies. It's on HBO. It has already premiered in the UK. It's a decade-spanning thing that sort of covers all of Russell T. Davies's personal curiosities and fascinations. So it's half kind of family domestic melodrama, half political rant, and half science fiction. It, it's not exactly what That's you think. three it, halves, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, no, no. There, there are at least four or five halves. This is like seven shows at once. It is It is definitely a turducken of TV series. <laughs> um, yeah, whether they're all successful or not is, I would say, questionable. But it is a show that is about a lot of things, that does a lot of things, that's never exactly the show you expect it to be. Sometimes it's really, really funny. Sometimes it's very, very dark. Sometimes it's politically strident. Sometimes it's emotional and human. They don't all go together the bits uh but uh, you know in a, in a week where there's absolutely nothing else showing that would be a thing that's more interesting than most of what there is <laughs> yeah like i said it's the first first real week of summer doldrums that we've seen so not a lot out there but it also feels like a good place for us to wrap things up thank you for listening to tv's top five the hollywood reporters tv podcast if you like us be sure to check out thr's other great podcasts including scott feinberg's awards chatter and josh wiggler's genre focused series regular and as i like to say if you like our podcast you should definitely subscribe to it on all of your favorite podcasting platforms if you really like us you should rate us on all your various podcasting platforms and if you really really like us you should review us on those podcasting platforms because those things attract more people to the podcast you should always say hi to us on twitter we're both there we love hearing from listeners and once again if you want to email us questions for future mailbags etc whether they're very very serious very very literal questions or questions about aliens i always like the alien questions true story you can email us at tv's top five with the number five at thr.com and until next week leslie until next week dan life's better with american family insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind save up to 25 percent by bundling home auto and life American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus.